Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features A16Z Bio and Health General Partner Julie Yu in conversation with Margaret McKenna, former CTO of Devoted Health and our newest advisory partner. Margaret taught herself programming, motivated by the ability to automate her work. And I ended up working at a bank, and I was super bored. And there was one guy in my group who automated a lot of stuff. And I said, can I sit next to you and see what you're doing? And he said, sure. (laughs) And I just hung out with him and I was like, what are you doing? Teach me this thing. And I started automating my work and then my work was done by 10 a.m. It's like, this is fun. And I kind of kept building on that through a series of jobs. Margaret and Julie also swapped digital health war stories, including specifics of how they introduced new people to the pain of healthcare. Every engineer was on call. Nice. So you had to experience the pain of those frontline folks. And it, I think, really ingrained, we can't have deployed failures all the time because somebody could be on the phone with a member. Yeah. And that's bad for your coworker. And it's really bad for the member who we're trying to take care of. The importance of reliability, not just as a like nines number, we need to take care of this person. Finally, they talked about Margaret's advice for CTOs and where the industry might be headed. So let's join Margaret and Julie as they discuss building as a CTO in healthcare. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. So tell us about you, Margaret. How, how did you get into tech? How did you get into healthcare? What brought you here today? I studied English and creative writing and planned to be a writer and had no interest in computers whatsoever. The only thing I knew about software engineering was that my Next door neighbor, my freshman year in college, made me a fake ID, and he was a computer science major. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's that what is they the do. killer use case for computer science skills when you're that age. Exactly. <laughs> the writing thing kind of didn't pan out, and I ended up working at a bank, and I was super bored. And there was one guy in my group who automated a lot of stuff. And I said, can I sit next to you and see what you're doing? And he said, sure. <laughs> and I just hung out with him, and I was like, what are you doing? Teach me this thing. And I started automating my work, and then my work was done by 10 a.m. It's like, this is fun. And I kind of kept building on that through a series of jobs and realized that I was spending my evenings in Barnes & Noble reading SQL books. Nice. And um, I loved it. It was like doing the crossword puzzle. Wait, what was the first tool that you used for automation? Like, what oh, were you coding in? or for applications. All right, cool. <laughs> Excel macros, of yep. course. Um, and then I ended up working at a real software company. And that's where there were all these 
software engineers that I could hang out with and ask questions. And I learned Bash and JavaScript and Perl and SQL and all kinds of. You did some banking automation stuff. You went to retail space. And then, and then what came next? And then um, I quit my pro. So I was basically programming at that point mm -hmm. um, for a living. But it was in the kind of the company shifted to online advertising, marketing. And I was like, this is not my domain. Mm -hmm. Um, so I quit and moved to Ghana. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, and worked on wireless mesh networks in oh, wow. um, kind of rural areas and then applied to grad school and ended up going to ITP at NYU. So I did that program and I started working at RunKeeper because mm -hmm. um, I was a runner. And of the companies that were in existence in Boston at that time, there weren't a lot of consumer tech. Yeah. And in fact, there weren't a lot of non-advertising or non-biotech. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got really obsessed with the data that we had, and we weren't doing a lot with it. Like we had this idea that everybody who was a RunKeeper user was just like Jason Jacobs, mm -hmm. the founder, who was like a very fit 30-something who was a college athlete and can run seven-minute miles. Yeah. And I was like, I think we should look at the data. <laughs> um, so kind of in my spare time, started teaching myself R, and trying to pull out data and learn some insights and, and shared them with the organization. And the more I did that, and the more I bothered Jason, like eventually he let me start a data team there. Cool. So that was when we um, finally had data science and we built out our more sophisticated data warehouse and data pipelining. It was super fun. Um, and I was there. I ended up leading platform engineering as well and helped with the acquisition by ASICs eventually, mm -hmm. which was um, really exciting and awesome. And then also gave me the chance to do something which I had been kind of itching to do for a while, which was start a company. Yeah. So it was an incredible experience, both the good things and the um, more challenging things. But after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to be a little bit more stable here. And I went and worked at the Broad. And this was kind of, I was moving along this journey of being more and more mission focused in my work. And I was excited to go to a place that was doing such impactful scientific research. Of course, I didn't know anything about the scientific research that was happening, um, but I did know about building software and building teams. And it was really cool to be in that kind of environment where there's so much innovation happening and what you're doing is really supporting that innovation. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I wasn't there for long when um, Todd Park came knocking. <laughs> and, and when Todd Park knocks, you answer. You answer. And when you have a coffee with him, you just have to do what he says. <laughs> like, it's, he takes over because your brain. Because he's compelling, just to clarify. Oh, yeah. For just folks to clarify. Who are listening. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's very inspiring and can really bring you along on the journey. And I guess I skipped a part in this chronological story about how I took a leave at Runkeeper to go work at the U.S. Digital Service, right? Um, which is a group in the White House that was bringing private sector technologists in to help with government problems. And I was very compelled by the idea of using my technology skills to make an impact on problems that I think could be seen as boring, mm -hmm. um, but are hugely impactful from a societal perspective. Yeah. And Todd was one of the folks involved in starting the digital service. And many of the people that I met there ended up going to work at Devoted or, mm -hmm. and were early, very early on at Devoted. Yeah. So, yeah, Todd described this vision of Devoted Health, and um, it was an unbelievable mission, business plan that seemed like it would actually work, mm -hmm. and a set of really amazing people that were already involved, even at that early stage. They, Ed and Todd, had so much experience from founding Athena that they were able to raise money to kind of put that the muscle behind doing this. And they were planning to build all of their technology in-house, mm -hmm. um, which was 
very appealing to me. <laughs> I was going to ask you whether that was like a feature or a bug of the feature proposition. Super okay. feature. Amazing. It was like doing that very early stage startup again, like all the thrill of we're going to build it ourselves, we're going to imprint it the way we think it should be. But there were some guardrails in the sense that there was, unlike on the consumer, my experience in consumer tech where you're looking for product market fit, there was already product market fit in Medicare Advantage. Mm -hmm. And then you just had to like execute. Execute, yep. Yeah. So actually the line that you said earlier about building seemingly boring technology that has like such meaningful impact at scale kind of explains all of health tech. Yes. What was your first impression of healthcare? So I think I was primed for it, perhaps because of my experience in government. I felt attracted by that part. Uh -huh. <laughs> the part like this is kind of broken and who is going to make it better? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and how do you get that intersection of people that know the technology really well and people that know the domain really well? Which is not to say that it wasn't a little daunting, when I showed up in my first week and somebody handed the, me the Medicare manual. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I see, some light reading. You read it end to end. Right. Overnight, <laughs> yep. And each engineer was basically partnered up with a business vertical. Mm -hmm. Like what's an example of a business vertical? How big? Uh, so was... claims adjudication. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> a tiny thing so, called claims um, adjudication. my co-CTO, Jack Nye, he was partnered with this woman, Janice, who um, is an incredible domain expert in yeah. claims. And he had been at Athena for a long time, and they basically built the claim system themselves. Now, of course, other people joined eventually, mm -hmm. but the first year, it was the two of them partnering on okay. this. So you mentioned co-CTO. Tell us about that. What did that mean, and why did you guys construct it that way? Jack and I shared CTO responsibilities, and for the first couple of years, we just wrote code like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. As Devoted got bigger and we hired more people, of course, like then you need to introduce some kind of management and Jack, I think, naturally is so great on the product side um, from having been at Athena for so long. And I, my background is more on the platforms and data side. Yep. And so there was just like a natural compliment. What is uh, one or two things you would say were in your job description as the CTO of a healthcare company that were absent from your prior and then vice versa, things that might have been in your job description outside of healthcare, but were not? This is not necessarily unique to healthcare, but certainly you can come from environments where compliance is not mm -hmm. really, you, you don't interact with it that much. It's either not a thing or you like ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously in healthcare, that's totally different. I sort of think it's exciting to think about compliance as an engineering opportunity also that there's like, it doesn't have to be a bad thing that you have to talk to auditors and work with regulators that actually there's opportunity for innovation there also. I think another is the importance of collaborating with your operational partners is so high. And I think in a lot of consumer companies and maybe other kinds of companies, product and engineering make up the bulk of the company. And I'm sure most CTOs are very collaborative with their marketing partners and their business development people and the salespeople, but they kind of have some weight on their side and they can do a lot of things that they want to do. Right. And in healthcare, you can't succeed at building anything unless you are working very well with the operators and you can't really innovate. Like it's great if you're good at building technology, but the real innovation comes when you have somebody that knows their domain so well yeah. that they're spotting things that you would never know as an engineer. And so I think that's another one is just be prepared to work so closely with those folks. Oh, and I think there's one other that's pretty important is that 
for a lot of healthcare companies, you are going to build a product either for an internal user or for external somebody. But there's also CTOs should be keeping an eye on internal operational efficiency Mm -hmm. and how they can improve that because you really need to be careful of your administrative costs when you want your company to eventually be profitable. Right, right. Devoted is famous for building everything from the ground up. And, you know, you hear stories about even Ed, right, contributing to the code base all the time. (laughs) But I have to believe that there were some areas of your tech stack that were just hyper commoditized, where the obvious thing was to just go take something off the shelf and use it versus build it from scratch. Like, is that the case? Or how did you guys navigate that decision framework in those cases? Early on, we couldn't build everything ourselves. Like, literally, there were 10 of us. So Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. and so we did have to strategically pick some vendors to just go with. And prior authorization is a good example. Okay, we had yep. an external vendor when we launched. I think within a month of for our first January 1st, everybody was miserable. Uh-huh. The clinicians were unhappy with the user experience. Um, we weren't getting the data we wanted to act on things. Data wasn't coming through in a timely fashion. It was a very complicated networking setup to talk securely to the tool. Mm -hmm. So people are miserable. And it was probably Ed who was like, we're just going to replace this. Uh And two or three months later, we had our own prior authorization tool and the other one was gone. And so it was often the case that even when we initially went with an external vendor, we would become dissatisfied and end up building it ourselves. Okay. So the general bias of the company was like, if we think we can do it better, we should do it. We should do it. Yeah. I mean, it was the best developer environment I ever worked in. And I think we just kept hiring people in and like, and not to say that there weren't, you know, it was a nascent technology that there weren't rough things around the edge, but it was something that was malleable and people could contribute to and make better. And we put a ton of emphasis on developer productivity from those very first months that I was there. We had people dedicated to making our CI pipelines extremely fast and so I think people actually found over time that it's a great environment to mm-hmm. be in as a, as a technologist, as just somebody who likes to write code. Were there examples where you did have to like integrate with some legacy 1970s claims processing EDI system? Payment integrity. Yeah. yeah. And so how did like, who, who did you put on that team and how did you frame it? How were you able to like pitch people to like get on that project and be excited about it? I mean, you know, some things you just have to do. You just have to take the one for the team. <laughs> take the medicine. Um, there's yeah. not, there, there isn't always like great technology innovation, but there's, oh, I mean, what was true about, is true about Devoted Today is it's so mission driven. Mm-hmm. Like it just bleeds mission. Any interaction you have, like any all hands meeting, any interaction in a, you know, meeting to talk about progress on something, like everybody's always focusing the mem- on the member and what the impact is to them. And so it makes things, and not to say again, like sometimes tedious things annoy people, but it takes the edge off a little bit Yeah. when you realize, well, I want this company to succeed because it's making a huge difference for our members. Right. Amazing. Can you call out any examples where you felt that Devoted built something that was like so cutting edge that even if it were a non-healthcare company, that it would be considered at the tip of the spear of technology innovation? I guess I would say on the healthcare side, I don't know that this is totally novel, but it's it's a novel innovation in healthcare, which is that the platform that we built was a single web application. We would have people join from other companies and they said, when I at my old company, in order to do my job, I would have to get to my job 20 minutes early, 
to load 20 browser tabs for mm -hmm. all the tools I needed. And we put all of that stuff into the same application. As a result, it was significantly easier on our operators, which is where a lot of things end up scaling. Like as Devoted got bigger, the engineering teams got bigger, but not that much. But the rest of the company got like much bigger. Huge, yeah. The fact that we decided to put it all in a single application and like everything that went along with that, single repo, single deploy process, mm -hmm. um, it actually ended up paying off huge dividends for us um, and is, is very different than how other healthcare companies run. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's almost, it's unintuitive actually to think about it that way in some ways, right? To yeah, have like a monolithic yeah. But it also like made it so easy when, um, for example, we decided to get rid of our um, broker agent portal mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and replace it. Like we had all this, now it was like a, you know, it's a different front end application, but like all the scaffolding on the back end yeah. to turn that on pretty easily. Mm -hmm. What are, what were some of the things that you did that you thought were unique to how you ran and as much as you can share examples that you thought were like specific to the healthcare environment and also things that were like unintuitive to you, you know, coming in as a non healthcare native person, I assumed it would be like X, but it turned out it was Y. And that was a real surprise to me. I think some of the things that I learned were not always about healthcare. Like we moved really fast as an engineering team. Um, like I mentioned, you know, CI times. I remember Ed standing over my shoulder very early on telling me that one minute was too slow for this certain CI step to run. It had to be under 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I thought, <laughs> we have no members. Like We have 10 engineers. Like, really? Yeah. I followed what he said. But, um, but he was so focused on looking for those tiny little speed improvements up front. And then to see that unfold four years later, where it was still, you, if you put a PR in, it was 20 minutes and it was in production. We could roll it back in one minute. We deployed 30 to 40 times a day. Mm -hmm. Like all of that was possible because of those, those micro, early on. Yeah. Like those investments early on and also the mindset that we brought to it, that yeah. those little details actually matter a lot and they add up. So I think it created a culture where there was low tolerance for things that were slow or uncomfortable from a developer ergonomics standpoint. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because in my experience, and maybe it was because Devoted was so vertically integrated that you were able to, like that culture was not just conveyed within the engineering team, but also with your frontline staff and folks on the operating team. Like my enterprise health system customers used to tell me to stop shipping code so fast because they're like, the thing keeps changing and we, we need to relearn the workflows. And they're in these like super high stress environments and they're just not used to things moving that quickly. And so I think it's an interesting example that speaks to, again, how the culture and the engineering team might actually permeate to like the broader enterprise uh, in a way that you can only accomplish if you're vertically integrated in That's the right. way that I mean, is. and certainly like when we did customer support, it was a Slack channel with our fellow employees. Yeah. And so we could be really responsive. Somebody could come to us and say like, you have, you need to roll that thing back. Um, which you can't do if you're building consumer tech or you're building a service for somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we also hired across the company for that attribute, comfort with change, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, comfort speaking up, because we won't always do the right thing. And we want people to tell us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there any rituals that you used to, like if you were to hire um, an engineer, like from totally outside of healthcare, 
and you wanted to like immerse them in like what it's going to be like to to be in this environment. Like I used to send my engineers to healthcare call centers to mm -hmm. shadow call center yeah. agents for a day yeah. and they would come back religiously transformed about like it can't be this bad. We must fix this. And they would just yeah. be so motivated to do their work. Um, were there examples like that that you guys um, used to, to motivate your engineers? So over time, we did do the call center thing. But what we did from October 1st, 2018, was that every engineer was on call. Nice. So you had to experience the pain of those frontline folks. And it, I think, really ingrained, we can't have deploy failures all the time because somebody could be on the phone with a member. Yeah. And that's bad for your coworker. And it's really bad for the member who we're trying to take care of. The importance of reliability, not just as a like, nines number we need to take care of this person yeah, like they're our empathy. family like it's your mom calling your grandma calling and we did give direct exposure to the engineers in that it's incredible now fast forward to where, where you are today we're very fortunate to have you as an advisor on our team here at Andreessen and you get to see like dozens of, of other companies doing what they're doing now in the market what are some of the recurrent themes and issues that you now see in the modern health tech era that your counterparts, your CTO counterparts are, are facing in the market today? I see a lot of different kinds of companies too. So there are healthcare companies that are started by either business leaders in healthcare or clinicians, but don't have a technical co-founder. And then you have a lot of companies <laughs> that have um, technology front and center. So a, a co-founding CTO. In the former case, folks are trying to figure out what kind of CTO is the CTO that they need or what kind of technology leader do they need? And there's lots of different things that could be good. It could be somebody who knows how to build all the technology in-house. It could be somebody whose healthcare experience matches the business area that you're going into. It could be somebody who's been great at working with vendors and knows how to pick the right ones and negotiate with them. Like there's no wrong answer, but trying to sort out which one you want to go with mm -hmm. is challenging for companies. Yeah. On the side of companies that have started with with that technology foundation like there's certainly a bit of the healthcare culture shock but i think people get pretty used to that pretty quickly but they're dealing with contracting with payers mm -hmm. hospital systems and that's really challenging you know the thing you didn't mention was ai oh and, yeah they are you know, about AI. okay so what yeah what's your take on how people are approaching it you know advice to founders and ctos in terms of what a pragmatic approach to the current landscape, just given that it's changing so rapidly, um, should be, uh, especially within the healthcare domain. Yeah. So everybody is thinking about AI. Lots of people are nervous about it. My number one piece of advice is to start learning. And I would do that in-house. Like the people who are AI engineers right now in Air quotes, <laughs> um, have been doing this for like nine months. Yeah, yeah. Like nobody is so far ahead of you that you can't learn these things yourself in your own company. Mm -hmm. And so... And you're referring specifically to Gen AI when you uh, say yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would be thinking about in your product, maybe there's something that is taking a while or the outcome isn't as good that you could improve there. But I also think, again, going back to monitoring your administrative costs, like you should be looking at use cases for AI internally mm -hmm. for developers, of course, but also your operational friends, um, because I think there is a lot of opportunity right now to kind of improve efficiency. But mostly I just wouldn't ignore what's happening. So last question, projecting 10 years into the future, what do you think the future health tech stack will look like? And the question that's on 
many folks' mind is, are we at a critical mass enough or will we be at a critical mass enough where there will be enough of an end market of digital health companies that require an entirely new infrastructure stack that new companies will spawn up to build or that companies like Devoted would spin out and like what Oscar has done with their Plus Oscar platform play. It's more these scaled organizations that dogfooded their own stuff that they're the more likely players to emerge with these software platforms that can be used by the rest of the industry. Thank you for leading me into my contrarian opinion. Okay, I want to hear it. <laughs> I do think it's really hard to build the right thing for healthcare if you're not working closely with a business. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to build enough of the use cases for your potential customers fast enough to grow enough to raise more money or to become profitable. And so, and you're saying like specifically from a VC backable business model lens, yeah, that, that, that's what you believe. Yeah. Um, and that devoted had time to build everything it needed. I mean, we went fast, but it in the meantime was making money because it was an insurer. And so, I think there is a version where some of the more robust solutions will come from companies like that. And I don't know, maybe Julie, you know how we're going to solve this, but I feel like innovation will be stymied until traditional payers and hospital systems upgrade their technology and approaches. Amen. Yeah. And keep going, like specifically, what do you mean? So I just mean that it's really hard to work with them mm -hmm. and their own systems are so bad yeah. and so slow and so expensive for them, but they're, they've atrophied into place. Like you can't move them. When you're a healthcare product company and you you think like okay I've solved I have a risk adjustment solution and I'm going to sell it into these payers mm -hmm. like you're selling into these behemoths and like their risk adjustment area I mean that's an important one but it's like tiny of their thousands of things they care about and there's a committee of people that are going to say like do we want this thing or not want this thing yep. and then when it comes to integrate it oh oops like we can't do that you can't have access to this API mm -hmm. I think there's so many great healthcare product companies out there that are building good technology and are to solve real problems. But how do you get them into the system so that they actually are having the impact that we hope they all yeah. will have? And this is core to like what we think about here in terms of, are you a business that enables the traditional industry to do what it does incrementally better? Or do you do something like what Devoted did, which is effectively rebuild the system from the ground up and you still have to play nice with the rest of the ecosystem, right? I mean, I think yeah. it's different. Again, the trope being, oh, Silicon Valley companies just want to like sort of subvert, you know, the entire system and build entirely on the outside. I think most of the full stack digital health companies that you see, they're taking reimbursement risk. They're referring to providers. And, you know, there's a lot of interfaces that they do have with the tr traditional system, but the core business they have, they can build in such a way that they have control over. That, that almost today, I would argue, is a big enough segment itself for tools to start to sell into. And you've seen a little bit of that. But it is that the growth of those companies still, to some degree, is predicated on the curves of the two segments meeting at some point And there being some hope that, you know, people don't feel as beholden to the legacy EHRs and which they've invested, by the way, hundreds of millions of dollars in. Epic. Didn't mention it. And yeah. so the last thing I'll say on this is that we are at an interesting inflection point from an industry perspective, which is we are 10 years past meaningful use, right? So mm -hmm. there is this kind of just natural cycle where organizations that have been on these systems for 10 years are kind of lifting their heads up and saying, did we get what we thought we were going to get? Right. And was it worth the investment? The next question is, is there any other choice in the market today? And that's probably where there's 
huge white space opportunity for companies to build that next generation of platform that would be fit to serve, you know, that very complicated and very non-trivial set of enterprise use cases. What do you think is going to change those companies? The, the Humanas, Uniteds, Blues? The tip of the spear for payers, I believe, has been member experience. Mm -hmm. And the number of, I've actually quoted a health plan executive telling me that consumer engagement is a trillion dollar problem for them. Like if you could find me a solution for consumer engagement, that would be worth a trillion dollars. faster. <laughs> yes, because I mean, that's, and I mean, it's it's kind of at a fever pitch right now, right? With the suing of Cigna and, yep. you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of real bubbling up of anger from the consumer base and like that's causing the, the payers to listen. And then I think the same thing from the provider side, the power dynamic there was obviously much more severe in many ways, but same thing, if they're, if insurers are expecting providers to uh, take on risk, but not give them the tools to be able to do that, then it's a lose-lose situation for both parties. And so we, we have started to see a few examples where payers are willing to invest in novel technologies to hand to the providers to help them in that partnership of risk delegation, where they don't have the privilege of having the integrated relationship that perhaps a devoted has. So. Mm -hmm. We're seeing pockets of it, um, and it's being driven. It's being driven by anger. It's being driven by a fever pitch <laughs> I mean, of folks who takes. feel extremely <laughs> underserved. Yeah, great. Well, this was amazing, Margaret. Thank you for sharing your uh, highly unique perspectives, and um, we're obviously very excited to have you here and working with our with our companies. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. Mm -hmm.